0: I'm Melody Asani. I'm Julie Burns-Walker. Today, we welcome you back to the Butterfly Forecast. Hey, Jeff.
1: Good morning.
0: Nice to meet you.
1: Nice to meet you as well.
0: How's it going?
1: It's going. How do you guys know each other?
0: Julie and I, we formally met because we started working together. So I was Julie's client like 20 plus years ago. And I was really depressed. I was about to, on the verge of dropping out of law school. Somebody was like, oh, there's this woman. You should talk to her. She's, you know, she's like, I can't really explain what she does. but," And I was like, all right, I'll talk to anybody. And so I made an appointment with her. And like one conversation changed my life. Damn. Yeah.
1: Well, I hope this conversation changes my life. Too. Yeah. <laughs> this is high standards
0: though.
2: Yeah, we're not in session, Jeff. This is fun. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs>
0: Jeff, how do you and Melody know each other?
1: Oh, good question.
0: Yeah, I couldn't remember where we. I mean, you've just kind. We've always kind of been in the same. Sort of world. And you've mentioned him so often through the years. What's weird is
2: I'm just meeting you today, but I feel like I know you. That sort of bridge connection.
1: Definitely. I'm trying to remember the first time. I mean, the earliest recollection that I have of you is like when you were making just acrylic based, sort of the colorful jewelry. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't even think you were doing any apparel yet back then, right? Yeah. But I can't remember where it was. Were you ever based in New York?
0: No. But I went there a lot. Yeah, I feel like the first time you and I actually connected was in Dubai when you were doing your podcast.
1: I know this is this is kind of like podcast battle right now. You're good. You're. <laughs> have you ever interviewed someone who has their own podcast? <laughs> I have
2: my style. You have your style.
1: Yeah, I'm. Already, I already know the questions you're going to ask me. No, <laughs>
2: well, remember, it's not an interview here, so you're free.
1: Yes, I'm excited. I like being on the other side where I don't have to think about the mm-hmm. flow and the questioning. I just I'm just allowed to answer.
0: Well, we're really excited to have you. So much.
2: And you know, Jeff, um, Melody was telling me, I was asking her to well, tell me more about him. I know what he has done. I know what he does in the world, but tell me about him. And she was like, Well, I'll tell you one thing you have in common with him. You He's had a near-death experience. And I was like, whoa. That's Uh, an interesting
1: thing to have in common.
2: (laughs) It is. I've had two. I have had two as well.
1: Oh, let's share.
2: Yeah, I would love to know. When was
1: yours? Well, there's two. um, And the differences in the two are that one was very fast and sudden, and the other one was extremely long and drawn out. So which one do you want to hear first?
0: (laughs) Whichever one happened first.
1: Okay, the first one was the long and drawn out one It's about 15 years ago now. And I'm a pretty avid snowboarder. I like will go to remote places like the Alps or Hokkaido to go snowboarding. And one year, me and eight friends decided to go to the Andes, you know, you land in Santiago, Chile, and then you go, it's about a 15,000 foot elevation up to the top of the Andes. And so we were snowboarding there. And I got caught in what's known as a whiteout situation, which is when a snowstorm basically hits. And because you're so high, you're above the tree line. So there's no trees at all. And then when a a snowstorm comes in, you're basically in that, if you you guys watched or remember Matrix 1, where like when Keanu Reeves is in that white room and there's no up, down, left, right, you're basically in that situation where you're like inside of a cloud. yeah, And you have no reference points because there's no trees. So you're just like floating. You don't know left, right, or up or down, right. And so the whiteout passed. And then I realized I had lost my seven friends, we all just like sort of went about in our ways. And then I I continued to snowboard down. And I figured in a very like sort of American, Western mentality, that like, if you keep snowboarding down the mountain, you'll get to the lodge or the bottom of the ski lift, like eventually, right. So I went down. And lo and behold, I reached like the edge of a 15,000 foot cliff, like right at the edge. Right. And then it, it clicked on me. I was like, oh yeah, we're in the wilderness. This is not like heavenly at Lake Tahoe. This is like freaking <laughs> the Andes Mountains, you know? And so it's I tried to really, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, and there's no cell phone signal. I can't call anybody. You know, mm-hmm. I had half a bottle of water left and uh, I tried to not freak out. So I was like very calmly at the edge. I, I took my snowboard off, put it into my backpack. And then I rationally tried to think that if I just follow my the mark that I made in my tracks, if I just follow that, eventually I will get back to where I came from. Mm. Right? I was just trying to use mm. that logic. So yes. took my took my snowboard off, started marching, and the snow went up to my hips. Each step I had to like make this massive thing. So it was wow. just like... And it's snowing and it's freezing, you know, as I'm doing this hike, I start hearing, like rushing water. What I'm noticing is that with each puncture that my leg is making, it's making a hole in the snow. And I look down in the hole and there's a raging river that I'm walking on top of that goes off the mountain. Yeah. And I'm sitting here perforating the snow shelf that I'm walking on top of. As I notice this, the hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And like, I eventually I'm at a point where I'm holding like this onto an ice shelf with my legs dangling over a river God. that's going off. Yeah. I literally poop my pants. So like in, in the process of me trying to get up, like all bodily functions just stopped working because all mm-hmm. energy went into getting up off to the side. Right. So get up off to the side because it's like I'm in sort of like a valley. So like I managed to get up to the side. So I'm not in way of the river. Ah, And that was the beginning. That was the first hour of a six hour journey.
0: I want to know more. Tell me everything. What else? What happened next?
1: Just going through dehydration, hallucination, hearing, seeing things. At one point, I heard children laughing at me. At one point, I saw rocks just turn into people. And at one point this is probably the the most life-changing part of it at one point I knew that if by 6 pm I wasn't found, I would be dead like mm. I would have to be there overnight right because then yes. it would be dark no one could find me and so there was like a clock ticking on this and uh, at one point I dug my own grave I dug a hole and I laid in it and I sat there for I don't know how long I mean it felt like an hour but it could have been 10 minutes or something and I laid in it like literally crossed my arms and just like laid in a grave. And then something just like some reaction was just like, no, like, no, you're not going to just lay down and let this happen. Like you're going to, if you're going to die, you're going to do it fighting. So like popped up out of the grave and then just like had a, had a second rush to just like March, March, March. And it was just like, get up to the top so that you can see. And then down about and just kept going like this, just in a whiteout, just like, each hike was like 30 minutes up and down, 30 minutes up and down, 30 minutes up and down. You know, I started having to like drink or like take the snow and make water out of it and then drink it, which I found out later only accelerates the dehydration because you're basically drinking salt water. It's like drinking ocean water. You can't do that. So that wasn't helping. And then right around like 5.30, 6 o'clock, just as the sun is like about to set, I hear a snowmobile coming. And at this point, I'm thinking I'm still hallucinating. Like, this is another hallucination. And it was a real snowmobile. And he comes, and then he was like, what are you doing here? And I was like, how did you know I was here? So I'm on one mountain. He said, somebody on another whole mountain saw you, knew that you weren't in a place you're supposed to be in, called this mountain's ranger, and then I came and looked for you. And I still, to this day, don't know who that person is on the other mountain that saved my life. So he rescued me, went to get me checked. And then the, the crazy thing is that evening, I went back to the house where me and all my friends were staying. You know, they had split up into two groups as well. So each group thought I was with the other group. So they were just like, oh, where you been? They had no idea I was missing. Yeah, What it was just an, a really life-changing experience. And this actually came five years into me starting Staple, when you start any business, that five-year mark is like where companies and brands and businesses either sort of go forward or they kind of don't go forward. There's like a Mm five-year mark where a lot of businesses just start to like eat themselves in terms of like their their expenses and profits. And I was at that point at the five-year mark where like Staple was just getting really hard, really stressful. Bills were mounting up, you know, like lots of debt. You know, trying to just keep the vision while also keeping the lights on was very, very difficult and stressful. And having this situation happen was such a blessing for me because upon going back to New York and like the rat race, it just put everything into perspective. You know, everyone's stressing out, everyone was like hitting me on like, you know, texts and emails about like this has to be done, this bill, that bill. And I'm just like, no, I'm here. It's it's all (laughs) good. (laughs) I'm alive. So it really put everything into perspective. And to this day, I really try to hold that moment on that mountain as like a like a nugget inside of my soul yes. that I try to tap into. When when life gets hectic, it, it is gonna get hectic, but when it does, I I'm like, I'm not on that mountain. I'm not laying on in my own grave. So it's all good. Everything is all good.
2: That actually brings to mind a question about I think it's so hard to share what happens to you when something cataclysmic happens. But in my observation of us humans, when something like that happens, the moment it happens, you are not you anymore. You're not the same you ever again. And, uh, you know, I've met people who have been through virtually everything we've ever heard about and read about and always – I asked them this question because I actually love it that we are made of something greater than we think. So that when we're creating after that, I feel like there's something uniquely present that wasn't there before. Can you identify that for yourself?
1: Yeah. I never thought of it that way, that there was like the transformation. Mm-hmm. I thought of it more like as like a, an additional chapter written in my book. When when you said that, it struck a chord with me because it was such a change that it could have literally reprogrammed some of my DNA. Like, I could have literally changed that day. But I always rationalized it to myself that it was like an added experience. A lot of that is because of who I am and how I try to be as robotic as possible. What do you mean? I have this chaos versus order issue. In my life, where it's like there's no in between. If things are not in complete order, then they're in complete chaos. And what I'm trying to learn is that there are beautiful grays in between, and you have to let like allow randomness into your life. But I grew up with such, now that I'm realizing this through therapy, I grew up in such disorder and chaos. It was necessary for me to create a bubble, a protection of OCD perfectionist, Mm. like order. And so like, if you went into my child's bedroom, you know, and you like moved the pencil, I would know (laughs) that the pencil was moved because I needed that structure because I didn't have it in any other place in my life. And so uh, that goes with what you're saying, which is the idea that a human could change like this is frightening to me. So Mm -hmm. I think I've probably processed it like, no, you didn't change. You actually just added a chapter to
0: it. <laughs> new <laughs> skills. New skills.
1: Yeah, exist new skill. Yeah.
0: Even though it was life, but you describe it as life changing.
1: <laughs> I know, I know, but it still didn't, you know, I describe it as life changing, but it didn't change my life. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm too robotic.
1: I'm, I'm too robotic for that to happen.
2: Well, you know, uh, also like what you do. And to me, this is like the fascinating thing about the energetic aspect of us. But like when you're creating, then it, it changes what you create, what you're drawn towards creating, what what you're not drawn towards anymore.
1: I also equate it to like in the creative process. You know, as you guys know, it's it's a lot about risk taking, right? Like you want to express something, you want to say something from the inside out. But as an artist, you are always worried about public reaction, judgment, judgment of people you don't know, people you do know, people you love, people you hate. Like, there's just so much agita involved in like, I'm about to put this thing out into the (laughs) world. And to like, literally give zero bucks is very difficult. That's a very (laughs) black belt level, you know, place. So the risk of putting yourself out there and allowing the world to judge you, I think that incident helped a lot because it made me say like time is very limited that everyone has on this earth and if you want to put something out just put it out what's the worst that could happen you know like honestly Mm -hmm. so I think me taking gambles and risks you know if you look at the stuff that I've done some of it might look random some of it might look like it's a lot some people say like why do you do so much and it's because I'm just out there rolling the dice like all the time (laughs) like I don't care. Like, I'm not on that mountain. So I don't care what happens. Like, let's just try this.
0: Oh,
2: so it sort of freed you before. Maybe you saw one path in front of you and now you see many.
1: Yeah. By the way, That's I'm mean. not immune to it. I still have many baggages and burdens of like I could get a hundred positive, glowing, loving comments on an Instagram post. And <laughs> that one person <laughs> who says that shit ruins
0: everything. No, here's,
1: here's the thing. Here's the thing. Yeah. It used to ruin my week now it ruins my hour Mm. Mm. and I'm going to be really honest about that like you hater on my comments you Mm. did affect me yes but you affected me for 45 minutes
0: that's amazing
1: you're an asshole and I'm done yeah because I know I have some friends where like it affects them like for a month
0: or changes their
2: direction because they can't face that again and they're like I'm done I'm done I'm not gonna deal with this anymore I know a really extraordinary author writer and she quit her industry after many successes due to exactly that. She couldn't public, take public criticism. The public, yeah, bullying, not criticism, because they don't know anything. They're just basically weighing her down,
0: making her doubt the value of what she worked so hard to achieve. What made you, like, what kind of process did you develop for yourself that allowed you to go from it affecting you for a day to an hour?
1: It wasn't like a prescriptive playbook, I would say. There's also like just confidence that you have in yourself, you know, and like what you've done. I also am very bad about like giving myself flowers. My wife and partner has helped out a lot with that. She's like my number one cheerleader and it's just great that, you know, when somebody throws shade, the self-critic is like maybe they're right, but it's great to just have some a partner there to be like nah, that dude is washed. They're so jealous of you right now. And it's like, (laughs) yeah, they are.
0: Yeah, they're jealous of me. So like,
1: it feels good to have that. Yeah. But if you think about the way people tend to absorb social media, it's an isolated thing. You don't sit with four friends and like scroll Instagram Mm -hmm. and compare comments. You're probably under your covers, alone in a room, reading these things about yourself. And that's when like you're arguably most vulnerable and then here's someone now attacking you and like you look left and you look right and there's literally no one there near you probably at that moment Mm. you know so that's it's sort of set up as a self-fulfilling prophecy of vulnerability
2: Mm. oh what a good point i think that it's a war tactic it's a military tactic you know isolate and break
1: yes because think about the olden days like pre-internet where like if you were at like a, a bar or like a club or a party and some Some biatch was like, your designs is whack. Immediately, you would have people like, who the fuck? Who is it? Should we take care of this? Like, you'd have your allies right there, right? Yes. But in social media, it's like this divide and conquer kind of thing that happens.
2: Although once in a while, the opposite will happen where someone will see what somebody slimed you with, and they will come through for you in spades and put that person in their corner yes. and keep them there.
1: I love I, when that happens.
2: I do too. And it's also the power <laughs> of justice and the power of word, the word saying the right language. Mm-hmm can really turn everything around. But also, whenever we're vulnerable in one of those spots, which, by the way, Jeff, thank you for uh, being transparent about that because I really think the more we understand that's a human thing, it's not like special Mm -hmm. people don't have that. (laughs) Everybody deals with that. I love that all it takes is somebody seeing you like your wife does. Mm -hmm. And it's not just that she's like, shining light where somebody tried to switch off your lights it's that she sees the truth about you and no matter what a part of you will never forget that mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. next person yeah. who comes along and tries to like you know move you out of their way however they do that you won't mm-hmm. move because you're like yeah i'm not even there <laughs> yeah, your path yeah. is not my path so you don't feel it and that's yep. the power of that. I love that.
1: Yes, absolutely. And the power of the word is so powerful. You're right.
2: It is. Snooshi, that's in your work as well, because like Jeff was talking about, when he first knew you, you were doing your jewelry. And then you started putting words more and more in your work. And then you were putting words in your uh, apparel. You, were using, you weren't
0: just using One aspect of design, you use language as
1: design. Wow. Yeah.
0: Pretty cool. Are you going to tell us about your second near-death experience? Yeah. How many years after?
1: Very short, like two years after.
0: Two? That's all?
1: It was in Tokyo. I had just borrowed my friend's bike, and I was riding down a hill in in the streets. Like a bicycle? A bicycle. Mm -hmm. And then uh, stupid me for momentarily momentary lapse i forgot that traffic runs in the opposite direction in japan so as i'm going down a a hill and i'm making a left you know in america you look right to make sure no traffic's coming and then you're good and i forgot that traffic goes the other way so i look this way and by the time i turned around i just saw two headlights of a truck like this close to me i was already in like there's nothing i could do at that point it was so close so i just went ejected off my bike into the windshield of this truck, rolled off the hood onto the concrete. The bike was like, the back tire was in front of the front tire, and the seat was like in front of the front tire, it was like a pretzel. I rolled off the hood, the truck driver comes out, see my son. see my son. he's like, <laughs> like bowing like crazy, so like, you know, like apologetic, and I got up. I thought for sure I was dead, because I felt no pain there's no broken bones. I'm not paralyzed. I'm dead. Like this is I'm <laughs> yeah.
2: That's the only conclusion you can come to.
1: Yeah. And the guy helped me up and he helped me get up on my feet. And then like, I just checked myself and there was like no issues. It was crazy. But then when I, so I had to like walk the bike back to my friend, <laughs> like, uh, here's your bike. I went back to my hotel and then like I took my clothes off just to properly check myself. And yeah, I didn't sustain really any injury, but like I had a bruise on my inner thigh that was in the exact same shape as the bicycle seat. Like the bicycle seat had made like a impression on my inner thighs, like because the ejection was so hard to me. I chalked that up as like a cat with nine lives. Like I just,
0: it's not your time.
1: It wasn't my time. But the difference, you know, being able to reflect on the six hour near death experience and then like the one second one of like the headlights in front of my face, that feeling of just like, you know, they say deer in headlights, but I was just like, oh, I'm, I'm done. Like it was just that instant <laughs> moment, you know, but honestly, looking back on it, Julie, like you said you had two as well, but, and I say this not lightly, the blessing of having Yes. These two experiences, one instantaneous and one super long and drawn out, I really think that somebody gave me a gift. Whoever gave this to me was like, I'm going to show you two exits out of this world, two ways to exit this world. I'm going to show it to you right now so that mm-hmm. the remaining days that you have can be that much more valuable because I'm going to show you two ways out. You know. So yeah, I I kind of live every day like, It's my last. And, you know, anytime it could be, I could be shown out the the exit door again.
2: My question is, so the second one, did it enhance your first one?
1: It enhanced it for sure. Mm. The second one was more about like I was just being stupid. Like, you know, Mm. probably shouldn't have been riding the bike in a foreign country. Probably shouldn't have been riding that fast and probably should have known the traffic rules a little bit better. So you could semantically break that down to like you were reckless and dumb. Which I did. <laughs> and I am. But I think it enhanced the whole thing because I was able to put two and two together and like I said before, zoom out and realize that like it's not just about don't do these like expeditious trips about like being on a mountain. Like life can come and go anytime, anywhere, any place, you know? So it, it sort of contextualized both into a narrative about how valuable time is. And since then, I mean, this now goes back into me tapping into my OCD self. But since Mm. then, I've been like breaking down time in my life, like a madman.
0: What do you mean?
1: So, okay, I started thinking about, like, how many times you're gonna think I'm freaking crazy. But I started thinking about About how much sleep a person needs, they say six to eight hours, right? So if you take a 24 hour day, and you subtract, Six to eight hours, you're like at 18 hours left, right? Mm -hmm. Then I started breaking out, okay, people need to eat, right? They need to nourish themselves. Even if you were like a super stand-up quick eater, you're gonna spend an hour a day eating, right? Maybe two. So now that's 16 hours. Everyone has to urinate and defecate. Let's say that's another hour of like just releasing toxins out of your body. Now you're at 15 hours. Okay. Most people have to make a living. Most people have an eight-hour day job, clock in nine to five at minimum, right? Some people like us are like entrepreneurs. We have our own jobs and everything. So it's even longer than that. So now you're at 15 minus eight. Now you're at seven, okay? Now you have family, you have friends, right? You have obligations. So now between if you have kids, if you have... uh I love that you're fanning yourself with a license plate. I know.
0: Sorry. It's the only thing you buy. Oh God. It's what happens when you're pregnant.
1: I'm yeah.
0: like, oh, God, hot flash. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, but, yeah, so I started just breaking it down. And it's like then I started realizing, like, wow, like how can I, you know, my mom wants some of my time, my dad, my wife, you know, my three closest friends. And I'm trying to parse out, like, this five hours that are left in in a day. And no wonder why people can't actually sustain healthy relationships with their loved ones or their kids or, like, can't get everything they want in their job. Because if you just look at the constraints of a 24-hour day Mm -hmm. and how these things break down, it's, like, it's very challenging, you know? So I just started to get, like, really obsessed with that and be realistic with with the expectations, you know, that, like... Mm -hmm. If I, I if I didn't get to this email or this reply or if I didn't get to like have this quality time with so and so, I used to beat myself up over that. But now I'm just like, no, we're all limited by this twenty four hour seven day a week dynamic. We just have to deal with it, you know.
0: Or work and not with it. Away. Yeah,
1: like
2: yeah. if we haven't changed the system, if we're not working, you know, actively to change a system, then we have to start yeah. giving each other. A sense of connection, but the space to not have to check in so often. I'm connected Mm -hmm. to but I used to talk. I mean, um, my kids, for example, are really long talkers. I love them, and I love that about them. And it's (laughs) amazing that they even want to talk to me at all. Do you know how thankful I am? I, I mean, they're my favorite humans, but they all are really long talkers. Like, we could talk for three hours, and they'll be like... I'll be like, I have to go. And, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, 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 let's talk later. And I'm thinking, oh, how wow. is that possible? That's how, crazy. How? But it's so cool. But now sometimes I will think, okay, some days can be like that. Then I can go for a week and not talk at all. And I start, you know, like reminding them we're still connected. So that like... Yes, it's really a remnant from the fact that when we lived together, we were in a third world country uh, when they were growing up and there was no other stimuli. (laughs) Yeah, So, of course, we just hung out, entertained each other with our wits. Yeah. But I think it's true with everybody now. And I don't know if you experience this, but some people, I think that we have to create like our inner sanctum. And so the people in your inner sanctum, while they can reach you in anything, they could text you right now and you'll tell us, hang on, guys, I I have to take this. And we would understand it's someone from that inner sanctum. And I think all three of us have those people and we know who they are. The challenge Mm is all three of us also are people by necessity. We're people persons. So we Mm -hmm. have to have relationships and connections with people, not just, quote unquote, business connections
0: and that requires
2: time and input and like you know that mysterious exchange the creative exchange with your planning of parceling out your day of what is possible i just want to know how do you make time stretch
1: my team is how i make time stretch Mm. you can't have jeff for these three hours you can have matt and jonathan and Mm. they will give you not jeff exactly but close enough
0: when Matt and Jonathan are doing that, what are you doing?
1: I might be on a hike. All that when I, when I was just talking about splitting up time, I didn't even factor in. If you notice, if, if you rewind the podcast now and go back to when I was breaking down time, I didn't even yet say time for yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that's what most people in this world have neglected is that 30 minutes of just breathing and not doing anything. And even if you do that for like honestly 2 minutes, it's game changing for your day. Yes. You know, if you just sat in a chair and just breathe, you know, deep belly breathing, dragon breath out for like 2 minutes, your whole day is just like reset yeah. in a positive way. So, that's, that's 2 minutes. 2 freaking minutes out of a 24-hour yeah. day, you know, like But
0: isn't that crazy that you we can sit in a meeting for an hour and it'll feel like a lifetime? A lifetime, but then you sit and breathe for two minutes and it sustains for it'll sustain you for a day.
1: Yeah. And and the the problem with society is that people who take 30 minutes of themselves are deemed like selfish and irresponsible and or lazy. Mm -hmm. Which is just like crazy talk, you know.
2: By the same yeah. person, by the way, who bugs you in social media—the yeah, same one that's yeah,
1: commenting probably. on your
0: <laughs> the negative comment. Yeah.
1: Well, the other thing about parsing out my day that's been really helpful is that I try to block out the the uh, necessity, the You know, the things that aren't necessary in my life. So, like, I'm fairly limited on social media. Like, it's part of my job, so I am on it, but like, I really try to limit that. I like, I've cut out drinking. I've cut out any sort of like drugs, not because I don't enjoy them, and I don't enjoy the feeling and I don't enjoy the social aspect of it. I loved all of that about smoking, drinking, doing drugs. But the ROI on the time efficiency wasn't there for me. (laughs) So honestly, like, driving to the bar, hanging out with the friends, drinking, paying, coming back home, hangover the next day, like it's like damn near six hours, (laughs) just because we wanted beers. It just wasn't oh. worth it. Like, there's no ROI there for me. So I, I cut it out. I haven't had a drink in like 20 years.
0: <laughs> that's amazing. That is amazing. That's the, the
1: robot. That's the yeah, robot. Yeah, I was like, here. Jeff, maybe
0: there's a little gray there that you need to embrace. No, that's the robot. <laughs> <laughs> this is so great. I love it. But it's also
2: music. like the near death experiences like permeating infiltrating and filtrating and educating you about like, well, we used to be like that, but that's before we knew what it was about. Mm-hmm. That's before we mm-hmm. knew how time really functions here. And then mm-hmm. every battle after that becomes a quest
0: for is this really where I'm at? Is this what I'm really about? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. After having those experiences, did you feel connected more so? Because a lot of people go through things like that and then feel a greater connection to the creator or something bigger than themselves, or all of a sudden they believe in something that they didn't believe in. Did Did it bring any kind of like spiritual practice into your life or awareness of some greater like divine design of something?
1: Not spiritual, no. It didn't open up any religious aspect to me. I do have a strange theory that many people share, not just Mm -hmm. me, but like the theory that we live in like a simulation. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Have you heard the theory?
0: No. Yes. Tell me.
1: (laughs) The theory is that the life that we are currently living right now is a simulation of a future state generation that is essentially playing a glorified video game. And we are the characters in that future game. The reason for that is because um, if you Google like the video game called Pong, do you remember that game? I do. Pong was invented 40 years ago, and it's basically these two white dots that go back and forth. 40 years later, today, if you've ever walked into your friend's room who was playing like NBA 2K or Call of Duty, and you're like, is that real life or is that a video game? Like, if you've seen video games today, you can't discern them from real life real life anymore. Mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's only in 40 years that that occurred, that shift, right? So if you take that same logic and now go out, let's say 500 years from now, ask yourselves, what will a video game look like in 500 years? Mm-hmm. If in 40 years, we went from Pong to NBA 2K, right? In 500 years, one could say that a video game would be 1000% indiscernible from real life, smell, touch, Vision site, everything would be a perfect simulation, right? So, if you think about it that way, in 500 years, there's only two scenarios. Us as a society has gotten to that point where we've created that video game that could be a simulation of this life, or option B, the earth has ended. Like something catastrophic happened, like nuclear war, asteroid hit the earth, and our innovation stopped, right? So, It's either one of the two things that you can believe in. It's either our future has ended because we've ended the earth, or this could be a simulation. And what I've noticed is that so many things in my life that are deemed coincidences or deja vus or like, oh my God, I keep seeing this number over and over again. Or wow, I thought of someone that I haven't spoken to in two years. And then they just texted me right now. Like these like strange things that happen. I'm like, wait a second. This is a fucking video game. Like someone is playing (laughs) a game right now. (laughs) It it happens to me so much. And I actually talk with some friends about this who are really into spirituality. And they're like, no, that's like you in touch with the universe. And it's like you manifesting things and stuff like that. And I could see that as a theory as well. But I think because of my robotic tendencies, I tend to think (laughs) that like, no, this is a game. This is a game that someone's playing.
0: Well, this is really interesting if I can just create a little foray here because Julie's near-death experiences were very different because she actually did die and was on record dead and then came back, and she was also in utero, which is even crazier. But um, based on all that, I wonder what, first of all, I want you to share and then tell what you think about Jeff's simulation
2: Hmm. Well, first of all, I have great respect for your evaluation about us being in a simulated program or programs, because I can, I can appreciate, it, especially when you're explaining your process, how that could be understood. I have a different experience, which changes it. I don't really have the luxury that most people have of asking myself, what do I think about something? Because I have an imprint. I do about many things, but not about this. And of course, just like your experiences gave you blessings, mine gave me blessings and they also messed me up. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) You know, equally, (laughs) because I'm a backwards person. You're not supposed to be dead first. and It messes with what you... And I relate to what you uh, talk about in your, um, you call it OCD, but you're really just trying to make sense of life, which is chaos and order. You're trying to find the balance between the two, and I i admire that, and I, I search for that as well. My near-death experiences, which I've shared a little bit before, but in a snapshot for today. My mother was an experiment in medicine when she was a girl, and then she didn't know that because in her era, if your doctor gives you something, you take it without questioning. You don't even ask, what's wrong with me? So he was just like, you need this. So from when she was 14 until she was 38, she was put on an experimental dose of large, large dose amphetamines, undiluted which they increased throughout her life. And miraculously, she didn't have a heart attack, but it does change your behavior, it does change your chemistry, and you grow more toxic from it, and it stores in your liver in lethal doses. So she didn't stop when she had her pregnancies. And Mm -hmm. when she was pregnant with me, I was her second pregnancy. And um, she was at the stage of toxicity where she was going to die. But what happened is it downloaded into my, through the placental barrier into my liver. And so my first one was the end of the first trimester. And the second one was the end of the second trimester going into third. Smushi, exactly where you're at, mm. like right about the same time in your pregnancy. So um, you're not supposed to be conscious uh, when you're developing in utero. You're You're just in a very visceral process unfortunately her drug the side effect when you take high level amphetamines if you get to toxic levels they put your nerves the myelin sheath starts wearing and getting inflamed and they were like it was setting me on fire so that's what was waking me up the the pain so the pain made me conscious I wasn't conscious before the pain I didn't have like a Angel visit me. I had pain visit me. And um, wow. the pain made me ask, like, how much more can I take of this? I tried breathing. I, I tried pacing my time. I would count, believe it or not, because you take in your mother's chemistry. So you've learned everything from your central nervous system, which she knows. Yeah. So I I would count uh, numbers to get through the pain. Um, And then I'd pass out. So that was my cycle. One of the last cycles, I only remember not being able to endure it anymore. And then the next thing I knew is I was in what people call the light. But for myself, no one had ever described the light. I don't come from uh, religious people. I come from atheists, Mm -hmm. long lines of atheists. And for me, I found myself in the presence of the light, which was announcing itself effortlessly as the creator of the universe. And wow. that wasn't a verbal announcement. It was infused in my cells, if you will, or my consciousness or whatever I was. The non-physical part of me downloaded all of that and mm-hmm. took in my environment and other, if you will, souls that were infinite in range and direction and even where they were from. Um, And it went on. So I was shown the history of our civilization as I was welcomed by name, which my parents would not come up with till after I was born. Wow. It did change me because I was told I hadn't finished my purpose. And that my mother needed me. Or I got the impression if I didn't figure out how to help her, she wouldn't be in the world long. Mm -hmm. So I went back in utero and I played with her chemistry by going in it and reading her chemistry and her feelings, her thoughts. And I realized she was taking something toxic, which is why I was suffering. Mm
1: -hmm. And
2: so that was the beginning. So I did succeed in my mission. And then Afterwards, the pain cycles renewed and got to the place where I couldn't endure them until I died again. My mother said the doctor had already pronounced me dead and said that they were waiting for me to abort. So my second near-death experience when I was welcomed into the light this time was permanent. I was so happy about that because A, I didn't know what life was, and B, I didn't want to, and C, I was in pain before I was in the light, and now I had no pain. But yet again, I went through a long, as if, if you look at me now, I am, I'm the oldest person you'll ever meet, because, you know, out of that time and space continuum, out of the brain and body, I was there for hundreds and hundreds of years, just learning about our civilization. So, When that experience happened, that is when it became about the future. So previously looking at civilizations, my focus was on the past. Afterwards, during this next several hundred years of walking through, experientially, by the way, in the first person, I was every person in every culture. So, in that experience, and, you know, I won't bore you with all the details that got me back into this.
1: Thank you for sharing that with me.
2: body. Oh, my pleasure. But it does mess you up, right? Because, mm-hmm. A, I don't have a choice to believe or not believe. Although my upbringing has zero religion. So, I was naturally drawn towards people who were spiritual. I noticed a difference between people who were religious and not spiritual, Right. people who were religious and were walking Facts. some kind of a walk. And I was so in awe of them. I'm like, wow, you have both. You, you found some way to connect to the universe and the creator. And you declared yourself this walk. Whoa,
1: that's yeah. amazing.
2: So, yeah, I think that it's tricky when you in either position, yours or mine. Because mm-hmm. once you have an impression of something, how in the world... Can you give it up for something lesser?
1: Exactly. I didn't think this is how this interview would go. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Well, one thing we didn't ask, and I'm curious about this tremendously. Do you uh, feel like you have an end game? No pun intended. For years, like everything that you have put in motion. So now you have a set up life where... You've learned, and now you've stretched time. You you've cheated us. You have more than twenty four hours in your day. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you have a half hour hike or an hour hike or whatever, and mm-hmm. your time breathing, time for relationships. But what does the end look like? Like, what do you hope to leave us with? What's your legacy look like?
1: My legacy. Uh, I think about this in two ways. One is I try not to think about the future at all. So it's really interesting that you that you were saying that like you've seen so many lives and futures. I try to prescribe myself to a life where I don't regret the past and I don't worry about the future. I just try to be as present as possible. And there's a double meaning with that, right? Being present of, of a situation, but then also literally present time because I used to be the person that was worried about, What was happening in the next hour, the next day, or the next week? But I realized why I spend any time worrying about those things when you don't even know if they're gonna come yet. Like it's a privilege to get to Tuesday. So let's get to Saturday first and not worry about Mm -hmm. Tuesday, you know, and worry. You can worry about Tuesday on Tuesday, but not on Friday. What's the point? I know you can get lost on a mountain on a Friday, you get hit by a Mack truck on Saturday, and you spend Friday worrying about Tuesday, like, are you stupid? So I'm always about the present. But I won't lie and say that I don't think about what I want to leave behind when my time is done. And all the things that on the surface level are the things that I create, whether it's clothing or footwear or products, they are all a messenger of a message that I want to give to particularly young people, which is whatever society or People in authority told you that this is the way that you have to live your life because I had those people telling me how life was supposed to go. And if something is itching at you to not live your life that way, you are allowed to scratch that itch and see where it takes you. Mm -hmm. And everything that I do is an experiment in showing young people what happens if you scratch that itch. And I'm trying to show by example that I've been scratching all my itches for the last—that sounds really bad. I have lots of itches, <laughs> but I have many itchy spots, and just I'm scratching all of them for the last quarter century. And look at where it's gotten me. Mm. Now you, you thirteen-year-old version of me, start scratching and see where it takes you.
0: Yeah, like take the risks without the near-death experience. Sushi, so do you relate to that? Um, which part? <laughs> the whole part. No. Well, I I don't think a lot about my end game either. I try to be as present as possible because it kind of messes me up when I think too far ahead. Also, I think as a designer, and I don't know if Jeff, you relate to this, but it's like we work on so many things now that don't come out for sometimes years later that by the time it comes out, you're already so over it. So I'm always, I'm kind of always onto this like, okay, what's next? What's next? I don't like linger and whatever it is for too long or think about, like, what its purpose is going to be. But at the same time, I think it's cool to forecast things sometimes, which I find myself surprisingly doing. Like, you know, I was looking into, I was, like, really, really drawn to women's movements and all this stuff before anything started happening. And I was creating all this, like, product around movement, like women's, like, radical women's movements. And then all of a sudden, like a year later, it's like we had the biggest women's march in history um, that hit. And then since then, it's just been like on fire. So so many things that I created years ago, I'm like, oh, my God, that would be so perfect now. And it's it's so cool that I kind of picked up on that thing. So I think that's why, too, I try to stay as present as possible, because if you're in the now, you're kind of like missing what's coming in a way, and you kind of want to be able to catch that thing that's coming. You want to be prepared for it. And as a designer, you kind of need to work on it now so that it gets here on time or else it's too late. Maybe Absolutely. there's like a portal that they're, they're
1: connected.
0: Absolutely.
1: And yeah, the, the, the trick is that being in the present opens that portal to the future. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, the, you know, those people that do like trend forecasting and like those, like those people who like try to manifest or think about the future, the door closes on those people. (laughs) Like trend forecasters always get shit wrong, but it's like, you got to be in the moment to like see into the future. That's the irony of it.
0: Yeah. It's so true. Sometimes it's so magical. Like I'll notice when I look at runway shows or When multiple people pick up on the same thing that's coming and you know they didn't know about the other because they're using the same kinds of things, but it's coming out so differently. Like it's coming so uniquely from their lens. And I love that. I think that's really cool.
2: And how like certain uh, aspects of an era in design or even fashion, uh, we don't realize that they're symbols They might even be universal symbols. And so they're always going to come back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, like nobody can coin, you know, I made houndstooth. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. wait a minute, you can go all the way back in many cultures and see there it was in different fabric. I love that.
0: That's incredible. Oh, Jeff.
1: Yeah, this was fun.
0: This was really fun. And now about your OCD, your therapy, your pooping in your pants. (laughs) life changing and <laughs> all friends
1: that's going to be uh if you want if you want to make a clickbaity like headline
0: yeah jeff staple poops in his pants talks about pooping in his pants while straddling an iceberg <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. oh lord <laughs> fortunately we didn't have any
2: expectations we really did come with open space <laughs> And uh, thank you for joining in the process of just having a conversation
0: yeah and for being so open and vulnerable i mean you really shared a lot of intimate things so i really appreciate
1: that yeah well you and i go back so it, <laughs> yeah. it was easy to open up <laughs> yeah it's really and nice it was to meet you here.
2: You too, Jeff. You
1: too. All right. Bye. Bye.
0: And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for joining us. See you next time.